Luke chapter 3 this morning. There are two key themes that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 3. The first theme is we're going we're gonna to see uh, Luke talking about the Son of God and the theme of the Son of God. You, you, you probably didn't pick it up, but all morning so far in the songs that we've sung and the scripture readings that have been done, there have been key uh, mentions of and key explanations and descriptions and praises for the Son, the Son of God. Uh, that's, that was on purpose. I wanted, you, I wanted to kind of get our, our hearts and minds thinking about that theme of the Son. There's a second theme as well, and that's the theme of repentance and forgiveness of sin, of course, linked to the Son, Jesus, and his message uh, calling us to repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. Those are the two main things that we're going to look at this morning. You there? Luke chapter 3. Let me pray, and then I'll read the text, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before your word, and ultimately, Lord, to come before you as you speak to us afresh through this, this word, Lord. Your word is active. Lord, your word is, is for the church and for all ages, and Lord, it is our our spiritual food. So as we read this text, and Lord, I explain this text, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us to do that active work, Lord, of, of using the word to shape us, and to transform us, and ultimately, Lord, to point us to your son. May we see him, may we glorify him, may we trust in him this morning as he jumps off these pages and into our into our hearts, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this church family. Lord, be, be glorified over these next few minutes and speak through me. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high, excuse me, high priesthood of Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I'll look up for a second, just give you a sense of, of Luke's foundation that he's laying here. You remember at the beginning of the, of the letter, uh, Luke says that he's, he's writing this account to give an, an ordered and detailed account of the things that we have heard and believed. So Luke is a very detailed historian. So what he's doing here in the opening verses of chapter 3 is he's giving us a very clear picture of when this is occurring. John, the son of Zechariah, remember we looked at John uh, earlier in the Advent season, 
the, the angel came to Zechariah and, and told him that he, his son, John, would be this one who would be the prophet of God, come to prepare the hearts of the people, to prepare and make way for the arrival of the Messiah. And so Luke is telling us that this is now happening. We saw him as a baby in the early chapters of Luke, but now we're seeing here with this description of all of these different uh, political leaders, it's, it's sort of pinning, pinning us into a particular time frame. Probably we're at about A.D. 29 here. So it's 30 years later from the events of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke wants us to get that. And again, he also wants us to be reminded that this John that he's talking about who's in the wilderness and he's, he's preaching this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is indeed this one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's why he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40, reminding us this is the one to prepare the way, to make the path straight for the arrival of the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's, he's, he's preparing the way of the Lord by, he's preaching repentance, right? He's warning them here about the coming judgment of God. And they respond, verse 10, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all of the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's the narrative of John, or excuse me, of Luke 
chapter 3. And then he finishes the chapter with a genealogy of this Jesus. I'm not going to read through all of the genealogy because it's a, it's a pretty long list of names, but I want to highlight for you what Luke is doing here. He's just talked about Jesus, the, the, the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus at his baptism. And we hear God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Luke says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son of, as was supposed, Joseph. And if you go a little further down to verse 31, he mentions David. Verse 34, he's in the line as well of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Verse 36, the line of Noah. And you get down to verse 38, and we see that he's of the line of Seth. Remember, Seth was the son of Adam and Eve, after Cain murdered Abel and wickedness began to flourish, God blessed them with a new seed, a new offspring, Seth. Jesus is of that line. And Seth, of course, was the son of Adam. And look, at, look what he says about Adam. He says, Adam, the son of God. So you have this whole list of, of fathers and sons, right? Fathers to Jesus, ultimately, but they're all sons of somebody stretching all the way back to Adam, who's listed here as the Son of God. So I mentioned one of the big themes this morning I wanted to look at was this theme of the Son of God. And so here, let's take some time to examine that. Both the Son and Sons of God. Because there are multiple Sons of God listed here already in the text. Let's talk about Adam. Adam's called the Son of God here in verse 38. In what sense is Adam the son of God? Well, on, on a sort of very simple and surface level, Adam and Jesus alone share something in common that none of the rest of us have ever experienced, and that's this. Neither of them had a biological father, right? Adam was created by God the Father. He didn't have earthly parents. So in the very beginning, it was just God, and then he creates Adam. So in that sense, Adam is a son of God in that he has no other father. But there's another aspect of sonship here that I want to focus on that's really very important. The creation account in Genesis that God tells us that God made Adam, and then of course Eve, in God's own image. In God's own image. So to be a son of God means here that Adam was in his father's likeness. He was given his father's likeness. But in what way? Did Adam look like God physically, like my kids kind of look like me? No, not in that way. God, God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. He doesn't look like God physically. No, the image of God in Adam was something more profound than that. To be made in God's likeness means to be his representatives in the world, to be a reflection of him in the world. Human beings, unlike all of the rest of creation, have this unique blessing and, along with it, this unique responsibility of being like God in how we love and nurture, how we cultivate and create, how we rule and steward like God does. 
In that sense, we are made in his image and in his likeness. We are, we are given this responsibility of acting as God's vice regents in the world. To be in the image of God is to reflect his glory, in other words. And not just generally, but personally to reflect his glory and his likeness wherever we go. Adam and Eve were told to fill the earth and to fill the earth with an increasing population of God's image bearers was their mandate. Meant this, it meant to fill the world with an exponentially increasing chorus of praise-giving people through whom God would disseminate his love and goodness carried into the far reaches of the earth through holy men, women, and children. And of course, when we get to the end of the creation account and we see the, the completion of the creation of Adam here, God says that he was well pleased. He calls his created son, what? Very good. Of course, it doesn't take very long. Biblically speaking, it only takes the turn of a page to see that Adam failed. He failed in being the son of God that the world needed. You can go back to Genesis 3, of course, and read that account, but we see there that through his disobedience, the image of God in man was marred. And through the temptation of the devil, he and his wife took it upon themselves to redefine what it meant to be, quote, like God. And in selfish pride, they determined that they could be like him on their own. They didn't need God anymore. That's what it means to sin. It's that, it's that heart attitude and that, that willful disobedience to say, God, we don't need you. We can do our own thing. Adam sinned against God. He broke fellowship with God. And as a result of that, he brought a curse upon the world and upon himself. In other words, he brought judgment upon himself and creation. Adam, Eve, and all of their progeny, which includes you and me, are under that curse. So a right understanding of, of who we are now, all of us in the line of Adam, is that the image of God in us is broken, it's marred. And that judgment meant that Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They were exiled from the presence of God. And the world, instead of being filled with the image of God, instead, we see by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, it's clearly stated, the world became filled with evil and wickedness. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Not the image of God was great in the world, the wickedness of man was great in the world and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the description of sinful mankind. That's the pervasiveness of sin. So, Adam was God's beloved son, yes, but he ultimately failed to be the son in whom the father was well pleased. So now Luke gives us another 
other son of God to consider here. Adam was the first son of God who did not please the father. The second son of God is not explicitly identified as a son of God here in Luke chapter 3, but this son is identified as such in Scripture, and that's Israel. The second son of God is Israel. In fact, Israel is called the firstborn son. And we see them in Luke 3 in this way. Those who were coming to John for baptism were, in fact, Israelites. The long list in the genealogy after Abraham are all Israelites, right? So who are the Israelites? Well, after the failure of Adam, the drama of the Old Testament continues to unfold. We see God doesn't give up on humanity. But instead, in his grace, he calls out a people from among the nations for himself. And he gives them the same charge. Display my glory in the world. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God begins to rescue this people Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And in doing so, this is what he says to Moses to tell Pharaoh. He says, say this, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So God calls Israel his son as well. He's the other son of God. And by he, I mean they. But of course, the unfolding story of the Old Testament reveals that Israel failed too, right? They, like Adam before them, were continually disobedient. They forsook the Lord for other gods, and ultimately they too came under the judgment for their sin. They too were exiled from the land of promise. They too failed to be the son in whom the father was well pleased. So the message of the whole Old Testament leading up to this moment in which Luke is writing is this. The world is still in need of a better son. So Luke now turns to unveil the public ministry of the better son. The true son of God. We see here the arrival of Jesus' public ministry at his baptism. Jesus, the son in whom the father is pleased. Like Adam, Jesus is the son of God in that he has no biological father. In fact, Luke makes that clear in verse 23. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, as was supposed, Joseph. But of course, he's already written to us in the early chapters of, uh, of Luke that Jesus was indeed different. There was something significant about his arrival unlike adam he was not created by god but because he was god himself he was made incarnate luke 1 and the angel said to mary the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called the son of god The people who are here, the people who are coming to this baptism of John, the people of Israel knew that the world was still in need of the better son. The world was still in need of the son of righteousness, the one who ultimately would be able to please a holy father and deliver them from sin 
And at this point, they'd been waiting a long time. They'd been waiting a long time. They knew their Old Testaments. They knew the promises. They knew somebody was coming. But at this point in time, it had been 400 years without a prophetic witness from God, from Malachi until the arrival of John the Baptist's present ministry. So the expectation level, we're told, was high. So much so that they began to wonder if John was the one that they'd been waiting for. Look back at verse 15. The people were in expectation. They were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. But John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. He who is mightier than I is coming. Again, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John humbly points them to the greater son. And Luke tells us that the father himself confirmed the arrival of this greater son at his baptism. Again, verse 21, all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. What's the main idea that Luke's trying to get us to understand here as he, as he points us to this, this theme of the Son of God? I think it's this. He's trying to say, people, he's here. He's here. This one that we've been waiting for. This is the Son of God we've been waiting for. He's here. I think that's the theme he's trying to get across. So, his narrative of John the Baptist and his ministry is here to also prepare us to receive this one who's here. How will we be prepared to receive him? That's the second theme I told you we're going to look at, which is this, the theme of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 3 introduces us to this public ministry of John the Baptist. Right? We've, we've, we've seen his birth but now he's a 30-year-old, roughly, man, and he's got his ministry here. And as we've noted already, his arrival is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a future prophet who would come in advance of the Messiah, of the Deliverer. And the job of this future prophet was to prepare the way for his ministry of salvation. Look again at verse 4 of chapter 3. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's his job, to prepare the way. So what is the core message of that work? It's in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. So if we're to be prepared to receive this son who's here, John tells us the way to preparation is through repentance. So we have to examine what that means. We have to examine sin and repentance. And start with this. If we're going to understand sin, we've got to understand the seriousness of sin. Lest we think too little of sin, look at verse 7 again. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. 
warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That, that's not a soft message, right? Somebody comes up to you and the first thing out of their mouth is, you brood of vipers, that's a shocking thing. It's an offensive thing. It certainly is calling you to the fact that what they're saying about you is serious. And he mentions a warning about the wrath of God to come. Wrath. Wrath is a scary word. Wrath isn't a word we like to use in conjunction with God, right? So what does he mean by that? What is the wrath of God and how does it come? You know, C.S. Lewis speaks of the wrath of God in this way. He calls it the, the natural consequence of a life lived apart from God. For Lewis, the fire of hell, to which John the Baptist alludes here in Luke chapter 3, he talks about being thrown into the fire. For, for Lewis, though that is a terrifyingly real and awful thing, it's not so much where God sends the wicked as much as it is what the wicked choose to create for themselves. It's a consequence of living life apart from God. So Lewis argues that hell is our own self-absorption and idolatry let loose for all of eternity. He would say the gates of hell may be locked for eternity, but they're locked from the inside. We refuse to give up the hell that's within us, so hell is what we get around us. That's one way the wrath of God has been described. And a lot of people would say that that's their view of the wrath of God. And I would say there's an element of truth in that, but there's more to it than that. There is an element of truth in that. Romans 1 says that part of our punishment for sin is that God in effect says, you want to live without me? You want to sin? All right, have at it. He turns us over. He gives us over to our sinful ways. Hell, or the wrath of God, is in that limited sense, God giving us over to what we actually want. And I think that's what Lewis sees. But as Kevin DeYoung cautions, if that's all we say about God's wrath, we're giving people a distorted view of wrath. We're giving them a distorted view of divine punishment. Divine punishment... Hell, in its eternal form, is not simply what we get because we make poor decisions, we make bad choices, we decide to live a selfish life. Hell is what we get because God is actually offended by our sin, and he punishes it. We see throughout Scripture that divine wrath is a curse on the ungodly. Not a mere consequence for self-centered decisions. Hell is much more than God simply allowing us to sort of have our own way and experience the bad effects of our choices. Hell is God's active, just, holy wrath poured out on the disobedient. And again, John's warnings here make that clear. Look at verse 9 again. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That 
As de Young says, if we only speak of eternal punishment as a Christless eternity or being separated from God or a hell that we choose for ourselves, we're not being true to the language of Scripture. We're probably softening a blow that God, in his gracious warning mercy, does not intend for us to soften. Wrath is not only a result. Wrath is a recompense. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So church, we need to heed John's warning. We need to recognize that we are all sinners. Look at me for a second. Don't minimize your sin. Don't minimize your sin. If God is graciously revealing to you that you too are not the son or daughter in whom he is well pleased, take it seriously. Reckon with the truth that the whole world is under a curse and everyone must face the unflinching wrath of God. Some will face it on their own in this life and in the life to come. That's what John is warning us here. Now having said that, does it surprise you that Luke describes this judgment warning ministry of John the Baptist in the following way? Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news? Yeah, it is good news. It's, a, it's good news to expose sin. It's good news to talk about God's wrath because if you don't have a God who hates sin, if you don't have a God who punishes sin, who curses sinners, then you will not end up with a biblical gospel. And we will end up with a biblical gospel this morning, I promise. John is telling us, understand the judgment of God and understand that God is preparing a way, a way out, a way towards the true son who pleases the father. And he's telling us where that pathway begins. Again, verse three, he went to all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin so we just talked about the seriousness of sin what is repentance repentance is a word that means to turn away from something and to turn towards another turn away from this towards that and in this context it means to turn away from a fundamental commitment to sin and turn towards the lord in obedience This is what the crowds are asking John to explain. What do we do? What do we do? And so he tells them what it looks like to turn from sin to obedience, which is why in verses 10 through 14, 
he answers them with things like, look, if you have two tunics, share with one who has no tunic. If you have food, share with those who don't have food. Tax collectors, don't take more than you're supposed to take. That's what tax collectors did. They were not good guys. They were not well-regarded. They were sinners because they extorted people. And same with soldiers. And so he, the soldiers are pointed out here. Don't, don't extort money from people. Be content with what you have. He's telling them what it looks like to turn away from sin and towards obedience. Listen, what he tells us about repentance is very important here. And there's a couple of things that he tells us. The first is that true repentance is marked by life change. You were doing this. Stop doing that. Now you're doing this. Now you're pleasing God, right? It's marked by life change. It's not simply an, I'm sorry for my wrong actions and attitudes. It's accompanied by new actions and attitudes. It's accompanied by a changed life. And if we're not experiencing a changed life, listen, you're not experiencing true repentance. That's the first thing he's revealing here. I think it's critically important. Yet, changed actions aren't enough. Neither is religious piety enough. God desires more from us than simple behavior modification. He desires more from us than simple church affiliation. John also says in verse 8, we need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That means repentance and its accompanying life transformation need to be ongoing and permanent in order to be valid. And resting on our religious laurels is insufficient and misses the point. Again, in verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. We're Jews. We're Israelites. We're, we're God's people. We're Baptists. We go to church every Sunday. We grew up in a Christian home. We had a Christian car. We had a Christian dog. We had Christian everything. We're Christian. Don't rely on your laurels. God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. That's not what I'm looking for. Here's the problem with mere behavioral change and religion. Think about this. If Adam, the son of God, was unable to succeed in living a life that's pleasing to the Father, with all of the blessings and nearness to God that he had. And if Israel was unable to live a life that was ultimately pleasing to the Father with all of the laws and the regulations and all of the systems that God put in their place, all of the religious piety that they could muster, if they failed, what makes us think we'll be any different? The baptism of repentance that John offers is a recognition that we are in need of cleansing. That is a right starting point. I am a sinner. I'm under the judgment of God. I need cleansing. That's the right starting point, but in itself, this baptism still lacks the power to forgive our sins. For that, we need a better baptism. 
So what does John say about this one who's coming? Verse 16, I baptize you with water. He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We need a better baptism. So John only gets us so far. His is a ministry of preparation. Luke is now going to take us further and reveal what or to whom John is ultimately pointing. Luke now introduces the public ministry of the true Son of God, Jesus. And as he winds up chapter 3, we get to read of two things. Again, remember the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus. What's Luke doing here? There's two big questions for us. There should be two questions for us. Here, here's the questions I'm, I'm thinking as I'm looking at this passage. Why the genealogy? Why the baptism? Why did Jesus need to get baptized? You ever wonder that? Let's talk about the first question. Why the genealogy? Remember I pointed out, if you follow that line back, all the way to Adam, you remember that when Adam fell, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God made a promise. He promised through their offspring that the serpent would be crushed. And we get a little further down the genealogy and we see Abraham. And we're reminded that to Abraham, God made a promise. Through your family, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world. All of the nations of the world will be blessed through this line. We get to David. David, the king of Israel. And God makes a promise to him. David, through your line, this throne will be established forever. And that line and that promise walks us forth all the way till we get to the arrival of the true son, Jesus. What is Luke saying? This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one we've been waiting for. Why the genealogy? Because you need to know that the promise is fulfilled in this son. Second question, why was Jesus baptized? What's baptism for? Baptism is a symbol of identification. When you got baptized, Christian, you were identifying with Christ. You went into the water as an identification with his death. You died to sin. You were raised out of that water, identifying with his resurrection. You've been raised to new life. That's what you did when you got baptized. The people John was baptizing here were identifying, not yet with that. Those realities hadn't happened, they were identifying with a need for repentance. A need 
again, to be cleansed. They were identifying with that. Cleanse me. I need, I'm a sinner. I know that. I need to repent. So if that's the baptisms that were happening with John, again, why would Jesus need to do that? Jesus isn't a sinner. He's the true son. Jesus didn't need cleansing. Why did he have to get baptized? Because baptism is a symbol of identification. And unlike the people who were being baptized before him who were identifying with their sin, Jesus came to identify with the sinner. To go into that pool of baptism was for Jesus to say, count me among them. He didn't need cleansing. They did. But they needed him. And so he identifies with them. That's the beauty of the baptism of Jesus. Count me among them. So Luke is telling us, do you see? Do you see what God is doing? Do you see what God is providing? Oh, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is a real thing. Repentance from sin is a necessary thing. But the promise of deliverance is here. And the good news of the arrival of the deliverance of the true son is that not only do we get to see the son in whom the father is well pleased, but we get to come to him and identify with him and we too get to become sons and daughters of God. John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do we become sons and daughters of God? Through repentance and faith in the true son. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights in the book of Acts, you've seen this already. Peter gets up and he gives his first sermon. And it's interesting, in that sermon, he's preaching a baptism of repentance as well. And the people likewise who are hearing him are saying, what do we do? He lays the guilt on them. You crucified the author of life. God sent the deliverer and you killed him. And they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? And he said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Identify now, not just with your need for cleansing, but with the one who died and rose again. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. How are our sins forgiven? Because the one who identified with us took the wrath of God for us. He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that we in him might be cleansed. And so Peter says, identify with him. Repent and believe. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was the baptism that John said Jesus would bring? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Listen to what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 8. This is verses 14 and 16. Just listen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. Jesus came and did it. And those who identify with him are now set free to become children of God who in Christ can do it. Not by our own might, not by our own power, not by our own strength, not by my own effort, right? But through his righteousness, we too can be restored. The image of God can be restored in us. It is restored in us. By the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us, we are children of God who can please the Father. Because Jesus pleased the Father and he's in us. Luke gives us two responses here. We can reject the good news. And there's one here who does. He mentions Herod back in verses 19 and 20. Herod rejected this message. And he talks about Herod's continual sin. He threw John in prison. He was so offended by this message. And he, and, and he says here, that just added to the evil on Herod's account. Herod is under the wrath of God because he rejects the good news. Have you? There's a second response, though. Again, it's the response of becoming a son or daughter by repentance and faith, receiving the Holy Spirit to live now as restored image bearers in the world who can again bring glory and honor to Christ through our grace-driven, Christ-driven, spirit-driven obedience to the Son. Luke wants us to believe that. Do you? you're in Christ you do that's who you are all glory to God let's pray Father thank you for this really powerful chapter thank you for the testimony Lord of John the Baptist who reminds us Lord of our our dangerous predicament apart from Christ Thank you also for this message of hope. You sent your son to identify with us and to absorb the wrath that we deserve that in him we too might be sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust in him, believe in him. Lord, if there's sin that's unconfessed, if, there's, if there is uh, anyone in this room who does not know you, to this point has been like Herod. They've just they've they've rejected what they've heard. Lord, would would your spirit move? Give them the gift of repentance and faith. Make them children of God. And for those of us who are, Lord, just remind us afresh of the, 
the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Let it be a tremendous cause for us to praise you, to worship you, and to live for you in Christ, through Christ, by his power, as sons and daughters who are image bearers, holy, pleasing to you. Thank you for the gift of the gospel through your son. We pray that in his name. Amen.